Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on New Books and Intellectual History, we have Dr. Cabrera Baumgartner, who is an assistant professor of American Studies at the University of New Hampshire and author of In Pursuit of Knowledge, Black Women and Educational Activism and Antebellum America. Welcome to the show, Dr. Baumgartner. Thank you for having me. Sure, absolutely. In Pursuit of Knowledge is a pivotal text in that it is an expansive history of Black women's educational activism before the rise of the modern civil rights movement in 1954. First, we will discuss Dr. Baumgartner's biography and some thoughts on intellectual history in general, and then we will engage in a more detailed discussion of in pursuit of knowledge. Dr. Baumgartner, please tell us some more about your teaching and research interests. Sure. Um, so my graduate training is in um, African-American studies, the interdisciplinary field of African-American studies. I concentrated on history and politics, um, but I did have a fair amount of African-American literature um, that was taught and um, courses that I took in that field too. Um, As you mentioned, I'm currently an assistant professor of American studies um, in a department of English. Um, And so this interdisciplinary work that I do blends history and literature. I study African-American life and culture in the 19th century U.S., Um, I focus specifically on the North um, and the Northeast, New England being one of my primary areas. And I'm interested in how African-Americans forged vibrant communities uh, post-emancipation, right, in the North. And I'm also interested in how they fought for their civil rights in the 19th century. And so the courses I teach, just like my research, are also interdisciplinary So I teach courses on African-American literature, 
I also teach courses on the African-American experience in New England, which includes, of course, slavery, but also freedom. Um, and I also teach course, courses on um, freedom narratives or slave narratives. So you mentioned you have a background in African-American studies. And so I'm interested, you know, more particularly how you came to study African-American women in history and culture or particularly in the 19th century. Right. I think I got interested in the experiences of African-American girls and women because I came across an incident that happened um, in Canterbury, Connecticut in 1833. And I'd always been interested in African-American women's history and literature. Um, but the piece about education really stuck out to me because of this incident. And basically it was, um, it happened in Canterbury, Connecticut, white residents um, in Canterbury attacked an African-American female seminary. And I wanted to know more about what it was like for African-American women in New England, right? In 19th century New England, in the 19th century North. And of course, their experiences are going to differ um, from those African-American women in the South, many of whom are enslaved. Um, so I really wanted to look at not just race, but gender and other forms of um, systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we always in uh, history think about be led by the sources. And sometimes That's right. when we're in that archives, we find something and we're like, I can put this away and come back to it. So that's great. Um, so you mentioned also that you have this background in interdisciplinary studies. And I came to intellectual history myself because it has a very, it's very much um, interdisciplinary and has roots in philosophy and literary theory. And I think you, it's a good argument that intellectual history in many ways is um, um, intrinsically bound up with uh, literary theory, literary studies. So it's another thing that may be interested in your book. So one of the questions I usually on the podcast is what is intellectual history and how does the term uh, relate to your particular text? But I might spin the question and ask you, and as a person with a background in interdisciplinary studies, what is the relationship maybe between intellectual history and interdisciplinary studies and or literary studies, mm-hmm. if that makes sense? Yeah. So I'm sort of familiar with the more formal definition of intellectual history, which mm-hmm. is, you know, a study of ideas and thinkers, and that's related to culture and context and, you know, lived experiences. And I guess the field for a while has been dominated by Euro-American philosophers, political theorists, literary theorists, right? But Mm -hmm. um, there has been recently a lot of wonderful changes and an expansion of how we think about intellectual history. And so um, I was thinking about this definition too. I really like how the scholar um, Latasha Levy um, defines um, African-American intellectual history, right? Because of mm-hmm. that, that interdisciplinary um, approach is so very important. So it is about how African-Americans um, as thinkers, um, as writers, engaged ideas and theories and perspectives and ideologies. And I think in this, in this book, 
um, which probably leans more historical, right, rather than literary. But there are parts where I really want to talk about African-American girls and women as writers, right, as writers and producers of knowledge. So they study, but they also produce. Mm -hmm. I like that point in the link between the production of knowledge and I think somewhere or in the in the introduction part, early part of the book, you talk about um, their interest in educational activism right. and how it was tied to civic duty, morality, and their personhood. And um, a big issue I think that comes up in intellectual history is well, how do you define an intellectual? Is it someone who sits at their desk and writes mm-hmm. things down? Which is another question we'll get into when we look at some of the more specific women in your study. Um, I think you're, it seems like you're suggesting that it's sort of counter to um, the definition or the classical definition of American intellectual history is David Hollinger's idea that right. it's the history of a people, right, who made a living by arguing. But I think what you do with this book is you obviously demonstrate how these are not necessarily women who quote unquote, made a living by arguing. They certainly argued, right? Mm-hmm. Built schools. But they're not, they don't sort of fit that classical definition. Right. You know, of the intellectual, the intellectual history has evolved in, to such an extent. We might, I mean, we could even call it intellectual studies. I mean, we're looking at thought. Right? That's right. Right. Exactly. So I think your book, you know, demonstrates that, that this is, um, you know, these are women who were public intellectuals. I think that might be a great way to describe them. They were indeed public intellectuals, even in the way they chose to share their opinions. Um, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes they did so, if they could, they spoke in public, although that was, you know, rare. But other times they're using the African-American and anti-slavery press to circulate their ideas. Um, And in the case of Susan Paul, She's actually writing a biography of her six-year-old student, and she's using that biography uh, to, you know, express her ideas about African American education, African American equality, anti-oppression, right, that kind of thing. And so, mm-hmm. the outlets for their ideas might be a little different than traditionally, as you said, that you know, the intellectual sitting at a desk. Um, in a lot of in a lot of ways, these African American women didn't have that luxury. They didn't have that privilege to sit at a desk and write. They were usually doing something else in addition to their intellectual work. And I don't even mean to, you know, convey that they were separate. Um, They weren't. So for some of the teachers, their intellectual work, um, you you see it through their teaching. Mm -hmm. It's somebody, I think about um, somebody like Shirley Chisholm. Yes. Who has that background in education and politics in a lot of ways, if we were to do parallels between the women, these women that you discuss in your book and, you know, 20th century public intellectualism, we could see the, the parallels that, um, you know, they don't have the same access that white males have. Exactly. And, um, and yeah. that classical definition is some, there's something wrong with it because it doesn't fit across time and space. No, that's and, right. And, um, as we sort of push the boundaries of uh, what does it mean to be an intellectual and then develop, you know, um, the history of the intellectual. Right. Um, we, this question has already allowed us to get into our next question a little bit that talks about black women's intellectual traditions. In the first chapter, you know, you discuss a little bit of the, what was happening in Canterbury 
Connecticut. And I'm also sort of interested in, you know, what were these traditions? What approaches did these women take? I think you also mentioned that um, Tara Harris, like, mm-hmm. is inspired by these Black women public intellectuals like Mariah Stewart, mm-hmm. who gives a speech. And as you said, we'll talk a little bit about sources, too, the abolitionist press and mm-hmm. how that then becomes a vehicle for these women to express their ideas. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about um, the parameters of Black women's intellectual traditions? Yes. Um, So I think in in this book, um, it definitely is a history of U.S. education, um, Mm -hmm. but that's a field, too, that engages intellectual history. And so part of, you know, when I wrote this book, I didn't set out to actually write a book about African-American women's education. That was my dissertation project, but I I didn't even think that would be my dissertation project and think it would be my book project. Um, As I mentioned earlier, I was just interested in this one case. Um, I I think it's particularly a devastating case, um, this violent attack on an African-American female seminary. And I had questions about the young women at that seminary before you know, that violent turn. I wanted to know who were these young women, right, at this school? Um, What inspired them to pursue advanced schooling? What were they learning before violence um, broke out? How did they react to the violence? Um, And then I also wanted to gauge, well, just how many African-American girls and women had the opportunity to study at a female seminary? And so I answer those questions in in the book. And part of what I was trying to do was to really make um, intervention in the historiography um, right. because much of the historiography makes it seem like African-American women were absent in um, educational movements of the day. And if we're thinking about educational movements of the day of the 19th century, we're talking about like the female seminary movement hundreds of female seminaries were established um, in the North and in the South. Um, So we might think of a place like Mount Holyoke Seminary, right? Now it's Mount Holyoke College, but in the 19th century, it was Mount Holyoke Seminary, right? That's an example of a female seminary. And then you Mm -hmm. also had the rise of colleges and universities um, in the 19th century and, of course, before that too. And so you really get this expansion. And it made me think, well, what were African-American women doing? How were they learning Um, Where were they turning to for advanced schooling? And so I realized in the historiography that there was a sense that, okay, African-American women couldn't really do much because they were excluded. So they're absent because they were excluded, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that narrative, which is really a narrative of struggle against oppression, I think obscured this very rich history of African-American women's educational activism, but intellectual activism, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of the work in the book is to uncover that, um, to bring African-American women into the history of 19th century U.S. education, but also into the history of, um, into intellectual history, really. And one of the main points that I argue is that African-American women were not absent, right? They were not passive in this um, fight for educational equality and that they actually had um, really interesting 
um, intellectual strategies um, on how to combat violence in particular. And so that's what we see in the Canterbury um, incident. Right. It's important, as you said, it, it makes several important, I think, uh, interventions that I see. The fact that you're focusing on the Northeast, uh, the fact that you're looking at women who, you know, recently I've, <laughs> I mean, just a few years ago, this idea that, that African-American women have intellectual tradition right. <laughs> was sort of, well, you know, what did they write and what did they uh, do? And so the history of American education, um, Black women's history, intellectual history, I think the book is is doing a, a lot of things at once, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of um, making these in- important interventions. And because I, you know, my work is 20th century um, and looking at um, Black thought in the 20th century, uh, I found it fascinating to think of this long history uh, of Black women's intellectual activism mm-hmm. in education. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely making, I think, several uh, interventions. And um, so let's look more clearly at your book in terms of, um, we went, we mentioned sources and you, you've sort of uh, answered, I think, this question in part in terms of, well, how do these women get their ideas out there? Mm-hmm. And um, such as with the abolitionist press. So, what are some more uh, sources that you utilize to tell the story? And this issue was tying intellectual, um, tying the intellectual to writing. Mm-hmm. You know, what were, were many of these women prolific writers, public mm-hmm. speakers? You know, what type of sources were you able to find to tell your history? Right. Yes. Yeah, so. I used a range of sources. Um, some are, you know, more common, I guess, historical sources like census records and court records, newspaper articles, um, and letters. Mm-hmm. But I also analyzed other sources um, like school desegregation petitions and school catalogs. And um, the school catalogs were particularly interesting um, in part because you have school proprietors who basically outline the curriculum at a particular seminary. They list the textbooks, that kind of thing. But I was actually looking at these school catalogs for something a little bit different. I wanted to read the school catalogs against census records to try to track down the racial background of some of the students. And so this took a long time to do. Um, especially mm-hmm. for some of the women whom I study, whose names are really quite common. Um, it, it takes a lot of painstaking work to find multiple pieces of evidence to prove that, you know, one student is indeed African-American. Um, but that's mm-hmm. what I was able to do, especially looking at the Young Ladies Domestic Seminary, which is the first racially integrated seminary in the North. Um, it was located at Clinton, New York. And, no scholar had really looked at that institution um, closely to identify any African-American students there. And so my work was, um, I had one one student who was named as having attended that school, Serena DeGrasse. And I thought to myself, well, if there's one student, there might be more. And can I identify them? And so I used the census records and the school catalogs, which often list, you know, it's a roster too of students, to identify a total of seven African-American women who had attended mm-hmm. that female seminary. Um, and that means, you know, it wasn't just 
um, desegregated, but that it was integrated. And then I started to learn more about the school proprietor, Hiram Kellogg. I learned he was an abolitionist. I learned more about his philosophy, his approach to education, um, which is still highly gendered, right? This is the 19th century, but he has a really interesting view um, on racial equality. And this institution then becomes something totally different than what I expected to find when I first began um, this work. Um, and I've since found more um, institutions, fe- female seminaries in particular, that enrolled African-American girls and women. So mm-hmm. it, for the most part, African-American girls and women were excluded from um, advanced schooling opportunities. That part is true. But in some locations, you can find um, a desegregated female seminary, right? They're rare, but I still think it's important to acknowledge the few sites where African-American women were able to, you know, get an advanced education. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off right i think reading against the grain and as you say that a lot of this history has been overlooked in terms to go back for a minute the way you describe them as activists yes i think when we think of desegregation activism we think of oh brown versus board 1950s right but you're really arguing that no this is 19th century black women's intellectual activism yes happened in 1830s um, concerted efforts, collective efforts of women. We do, we, we, we'll get into some more details of the different women. Some women we recognize, right? Uh, and, you know, Charlotte 410, for instance, there are some women obviously we recognize in the, in the historical uh, record, but I think as you note that they're, they're not looked at as activists. Right. Right. And I think that's important. I think these um, young women were most certainly activists and had an intellectual um, strategy for um, their educational activism. If we think about Canterbury, Connecticut, and the 20 to 25 young African-American women who were enrolled at that school, I argue in the book that, um, you know, collectively, they espoused this ethic of Christian love. Mm-hmm. And we might think about that that concept, that idea more closely associated with um, MLK Jr., right, and right. the modern civil rights movement. But you see some of that language and that rhetoric used by these young women in the 19th century, in 1833 at Canterbury, Connecticut. They're talking about neighborliness. They're talking about loving thy enemy. They're talking about righteous anger, right? And they're and they're using in some ways the school, right, and the assignments perhaps that they were given in school 
to write these essays that talk about this ethic of Christian love. And to me, that is most definitely an intellectual contribution, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're trying to fight for their um, opportunity for advanced schooling. And, um, you know, as I write in the book, what's unfortunate is that it doesn't work. Um, There's so much violence, so much vitriol, so much harassment that this African-American female seminary closes after only 17 months. Mm. But I still feel like these African-American women um, learned so much and they learned um, and really got a sense of their own activism. Um, and they were able, for many of them, to combine their you know, Christian faith with the fight for racial equality, the fight against slavery, the fight for women's rights. It's the groundwork for the beloved community. If you, as you said, if you look at their language, and that links the tradition of these black women to a larger right. black radical tradition, black intellectual tradition, and uncovering the documentary record. That's right. Right. Just That's because right. no one has ever decided, oh, okay, let's look at this pamphlet or this speech. But right. it situates them in that larger, you know, history. I think that's another important um, uh, aspect of this work. And uh, right. it makes me think about the North. I love the fact that you do the Northeast, probably mm-hmm. because I look at the Northeast, but the origins of the civil rights movement in the North mm-hmm. in the 20th century you know, is what I look at, but linking these roots back to the 19th century and looking at something like Columbia University, which mm-hmm. is my my next project, is looking at all these Black women at Teachers College in the 20s and 30s, and Columbia is producing more graduates, graduate students mm-hmm. than any other co- school in the country mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. time. So something is happening in the Northeast and it almost, when I was thinking about your book, I was thinking to myself, and I don't know if this is a serious question or not, we could think about it, but um, the fact that the roots of the civil rights movement, the long civil rights movement, the 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 chronology is getting longer. Right. <laughs> some, I mean, we could say, say the roots are really there. This is beloved community language in a lot of ways. Right. right. I So this is always you know interesting to me as somebody who studies the 19th century, because I think about the modern civil rights movement, if we think about mid 20th century, and I think about school desegregation, I use the term school desegregation mm-hmm. um, in, right. my, in my book. And I know that there are some people who might, um, you know, object to that. But, um, right. you know, if we're thinking about school desegregation, it's a 20th century issue, of course, but it's a 19th century issue. Mm -hmm. In the same way that we have Linda Brown in the 20th century, we have Sarah Roberts in the 19th century. And the parallel to me is sometimes uncanny. And so I know we don't want to keep, you know, making the civil rights movement, the periodization longer and longer, but we do have to think about um, how continuous it was and is. Um, that the 19th century fight, there's a particular context, but there's also a 20th century fight and there is a lot of overlap. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I would argue, and I want to do some more research on this. I do believe that some of those legal architects of school desegregation looked back to the 19th century movement. Mm-hmm. I do think they knew the Sarah Roberts case um, that much, I, I think, is true. But I think mm-hmm. there were even other cases, smaller cases at the local level and in, in some states that those 20th century legal architects looked at um, and drew inspiration and motivation from those. 
Yeah, you convinced me. I agree. Because uh, Marion Thompson Wright, who's putting together her dissertation at Teachers College, is looking at 19th century New Jersey. Exactly. And she's saying that here are the patterns here. And looking at New Jersey as both a microcosm of the nation, North and South, her focus was looking at New Jersey. But um, and I know there's a there's a biography. She, there's no biography written of her, but one is coming out. Graham Hodges is writing one. Mm-hmm. So she might be absolutely a person who's looking at the 19th century and aware of what's happening, then goes on to lay the historical work, um, the historical research for litigation. Right. Around. Right. So she's definitely, you're right. I was convinced, like you said, the language of desegregation, do we use this as this beloved community? I think the, the elements are there. They, they certainly lay the groundwork right. for what's to come. Right. I agree with that. Yes. And so that's why I said, oh, she's saying desegregation and activism. Let me see. And I'm reading the, as I was reading the intro and going through the chapters, I was like, well, I'm convinced because of somebody like Marion Thompson, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, So tell us, so this phrase I like when you, you know, this idea of the vision of new womanhood Mm -hmm. and, um, you mentioned the, the difference between the, or the point of delineation between cult of domesticity, you know, adhered to by middle class white women in the 19th century versus something you call a purposeful womanhood mm-hmm. that was embraced by black women at the time. I'm less concerned with like maybe con- comparing contrast to these two ideas, but purposeful womanhood. Mm-hmm. Tell us what you mean by that. Right. So this is. Um, a term that I use throughout the book um, because it's coming directly from the words of African-American women activists um, like Maria Stewart or Mariah Stewart. Most Mm -hmm. people say Mariah Stewart, uh, Sarah Maps Douglas, um, Rosetta Morrison, right? These are women who often ask themselves and each other, how can we live our purpose Um, especially amid such formidable obstacles, right? We're talking about slavery, racial violence, discrimination, prejudice, gender oppression, right? How can we live our purpose as Black people, but also as Black women? And for the women activists that I study in my book, they collectively, I think, saw education as their way, right? As their path. So they navigated and negotiated their sense of purpose through the field of education, um, specifically schooling and teaching. And I, I would try to be very careful in the book to um, make the point that education was not a panacea, right? It was not the only way. It was one way. And um, these women were very clear on the obstacles, right, in their way, even on that educational path. And so, they use their their labor, their energy and skill and intellect to remove as many of those barriers and as many of those obstacles as they could for future generations. Um, and so what I'm sort of reminded of is how much they did, right? And mm-hmm. still how much we have to do today in order to truly democratize public education. So... They defined um, purposeful womanhood as uh, this idea of being shrewd and resourceful, uh, resilient, um, forward thinking, right? They felt that they had an obligation 
to acquire knowledge and then to pass that knowledge on to the next generation. It didn't mean just children. It could be other adults too. So some of these women taught in Sunday schools or some of them um, taught adults um, in some of them actually were uh, teachers in the Friedman schools, right? So they, it didn't matter. It doesn't mean it was children, right? They believed in passing their knowledge on. Um, they might join literary societies where they would be debating with one another or opening high school, uh, high schools or schools, primary schools, usually. Um, they might be desegregating high schools. Um, you know, one of the things I wish I could have done more with, um, but the sources were kind of limiting, is I wish I could talk more about home and family and the mm-hmm. kind of education that happens there. I was limited in the sources um, of you know, African-American mothers reflecting on the education of their children. But I have two examples in Rosetta Morrison and Sarah Harris Fairweather. And I remember Sarah Harris writing to her daughter, um, who is away at school in New Bedford. And Sarah said, improve your time at school, right? Very simple, you know, but it's important in the context of African-American education in the 19th century that she's telling her daughter, do well in school, improve yourself, learn as much as you can. So even that is a, an extension of African-American women's educational activism, that little nudge to just improve yourself and continue working. Um, I think that is an activist um, stance, right? And I think it takes on greater meaning, especially consider what Sarah Harris herself experienced. Right. And then later black women, again, of the civil rights era, who sort of are doing very similar things, you know, educate yourself, learn right. about um, how to get that education right. and how it then opens the door or pathway to other rights. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, civil rights in, uh, in the society. Like there's a long trajectory right. um, mm-hmm. here, I think, um, mm-hmm. that you prove that it lays the groundwork and does parallel a lot of what a lot, many scholars have been saying about the civil rights movement as a women's movement. Right. And I, and I think African-American girls and women didn't have that many options, right. In the uh, pre-civil war North um, mm-hmm. you have Sarah Maps Douglas, who is able to attend for at least a year, one of the medical colleges in Pennsylvania. And she uses that education to give lectures and talks about physiology and other subjects, but she doesn't necessarily become a doctor, right? So mm-hmm. we, we, we see the ways in which, um, you know, African-American women are facing limited opportunities. And I think that's why education short, sort of opens up for them. It becomes this path where uh, in some ways, Sarah Maps Douglas can talk about science and she can practice science through the lecture circuit. Right. So Mm -hmm. they have to find these really sort of resourceful, you know, kind of sly ways of doing what they really want to do. Um, And teaching becomes that wonderful, um, I wouldn't say capacious activity where she can practice science and then she can train these children in Philadelphia on scientific subjects. Right. So there's a way in which it's not just for herself, but then it becomes something that's for the community. Right. And you see it in a larger black radical tradition, early 20th century, the Garvey women, women of the Garvey movement and the black cross nurses who were sort of, you know, saying, you know, we maybe can't become doctor, become a nurse and do Mm -hmm. medical science. Right. And so there's like 
all of these uh, continuities across time and space. Uh, so as we get to the end of our uh, discussion, I want to end with this question, and then we can conclude with your discussion of your future research. Um, we touched on this, I think, quite a few times already, but Black women and girls have played a key role in education activism through the civil rights era, as Rachel Devlin demonstrates in her book, A Girl Stands at the Door. Um, why do you think uh, women and girls, uh, Black women and girls were so central, are so central to to this history or in this history? Mm-hmm. Well, I think they're central to this history in part because of um, this sort of resourcefulness that I mentioned um, in the definition of purposeful womanhood. There's a ways in which um, these women also have established uh, their own networks. Um, Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that I tried to outline in the book is the fact that at least if we take it, you know, the young, the seven young women at the young ladies domestic seminary, right. um, They established a lifelong friendship at that seminary. I can't be sure that they knew each other before arriving, but I know that they knew each other after they left that seminary. And, um, the point of being there was not just to deepen their academic knowledge, but also to help their communities thrive. And I think in that collective endeavor, um, they influenced and impacted their communities. Um, and they were working oftentimes in tandem, right? But you don't often see that. You don't often see it. it's not always clear that they're working in tandem. Um, you have to go a little deeper, as you said, when we're talking about the sources, um, you have to think about who knows who and who's, you know, who has a neighbor over here. And so there's ways in which this network fuels African-American women's educational activism, which helps the entire community, right? And which I argue helps to democratize U.S. public, uh, US public education. Um, so I think that it's African-American girls and women who are um, developing these protest strategies using their networks uh, to publicize the issues concerning education and really, um, in some ways, powering the movement. I talk about this in, when I look at Sarah Parker Ramond, um, and then, of course, Sarah Roberts a little bit later. You get the girl as the Black girl as the icon of educational justice in the 19th century. But oh, that's, wow. not necessarily, you know, that's not necessarily coming from. Um, African-American male activists, that's African-American girls and women fighting for educational equality. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I think it definitely convinced me on as a 20th century person, uh, 20th century historian. And the fact that you say this is collective, it's not, you know, one woman here who's writing a letter and giving a speech. It's this network, collective exactly. network. Mm-hmm of black women, you know, working uh, to advance um, civil rights and uh, social equality, that leads to groundwork, I think, for the future generation. Right. So, so with our last question, I would like to know, what are you working on? What are your, your uh, future research involved? Right. So um, I still am looking at education and um, school desegregation in the 19th century, 
but I'm doing so focusing on um, one of the first African-American lawyers in the United States. Um, So I'm writing a biography on Robert Morris. Um, Robert Morris was, I would argue, the legal architect of the Sarah Roberts v. City of Boston case. And um, I'm interested in learning more about him. So I've come across some uh, sources. Um, they're really sort of interesting, you know, sources at a local historical society sort of hidden in a box. And I came across them. Um, and it really sheds light on who he was as a person and what his intellectual um, contributions were to what I call an emerging African-American legal tradition. So other mm. scholars have mentioned this before, but we wouldn't have had Thurgood Marshall. We wouldn't have had Charles Hamilton Houston if we didn't have Robert Morris in the 19th century, you know, um, spearheading some of these civil rights cases. Um, so my next book is a biography um, about him. Okay. Sounds exciting. I need to read that. Yes. Because <laughs> it will definitely uh, link with uh, this work that I'm trying to do in the 20th century, I think there are great links here. Absolutely. Uh, Well, Dr. Baumgartner, we have taken up enough of your time this afternoon, but I want to thank you for participating in this interview about your groundbreaking book, In Pursuit of Knowledge, Black Women and Educational Activism in Antebellum America. Thank you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.